Welcome to the Convivium COVID-19 Podcasts. Visit us at www.convivium-brecken.com. Series 1. Paradoxes in an Ancient Landscape. What a Welsh Mountain Taught Me About God and the World. By Mark Clavier. Episode 13. A Nuptial Faith. As I reflected on my two days at Kader Idris, I became increasingly aware that the mountain had given me a gift. Kader taught me about my faith and thus also about myself. It's as though during the two-day walk, the scattered shards of my life had been swept up and pieced back together to form a life and faith newly understood. For the first time, my love of nature, my love of walking, and my faith came together into a seamless whole that would sustain me in the difficult months that lay ahead. I thought I was at an ending, a new beginning. Little did I know that I would face another two years of stress and unhappiness before a truly new beginning was given to me in the form of a new love and a return to the whales I had come to love. But that's a story for another day. What did I learn about my faith during my overnight journey up Kadar Idris and back down again? Strip away everything else from our faith, and I think you'll encounter at its heart the paradoxes I'd encountered. Timelessness, thick time, deep silence, enlivening words, wonder, and the commonplace. Kadar Idris also taught me that these paradoxes don't contend with each other so that the heart of our faith is troubled and disturbed. Rather, they dance joyfully around each other, underpinning and forming and subsisting in ways that can only seem paradoxical to us, like the relationship between God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Call this sacramental or incarnational, this dance reminds us that God and creation are not opposed, that our spirit and body should enjoy a nuptial love, and that the fact that God became man explains everything. What is contradictory is how we human beings insist on conducting our lives. We're the ones who can't abide contradictions, who want everything to be understandable, for one thing to overshadow another, to be simple and easily handled. For us, contradictions must be ever at odds, the opposing dualities of our lives, resolvable only by one mastering the other. We clutter our lives and imaginations with warring dualisms locked in a perpetual battle for domination. We set men against women, the right against the left, reason against emotion, science against religion, the spiritual against the material, the mind against the body, and so on, almost ad infinitum. We even cast aside all sense of proportion by embracing the absurdity of setting ourselves and our trivial desires and demands against the far wider world in which we find ourselves. By so doing, we stand apart from the seamless whole of interwoven paradoxes, such as those I'd encountered on Kader Idris, trying to live happy lives that neglect or devalue them. Perhaps this is because our fallen hearts relish the heady exultation of battle. We don't really want 
to be at peace, not if it means accepting difference and learning not only to live with, but actually delight and find meaning in those things and people who seem entirely opposed to us. Truth and meaning for us only one-sided, even when we claim otherwise, and subject to easy, straightforward explanations. The idea that truth may lie in paradox, in holding together seemingly contradictory propositions, is hard to grasp or explain, and thus is intolerable. But perhaps Christ's command to love our enemies is a reminder that truth isn't so easily judged, the way so simply manifested, or the life so readily embraced on our own terms. Perhaps we need to love our enemies in order to find meanings that escape our control and egotism. Am I becoming a little too poetically opaque? And then think of it this way. What Kader Idris taught me is that our guiding metaphor for difference should be marriage rather than opposition. I realized through my encounters with time, timelessness, silence, words, wonder, and the ordinary, that while we can and often do think of difference in terms of opposition, we can also see them as being meant, even created for each other. In marriage, two become one not by one absorbing or overshadowing the other, though that may often happen, but by being so united in love that each person's very separatedness becomes a means of ever-deepening union. In marriage, two different individuals become one, and yet in their unity remain distinct from each other. What is that? but a paradox. What if differences were made for each other? What if differences are there to allow us to identify ourselves with others rather than against them? This, I believe, is a central lesson of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So opens the first chapter of Genesis and also, of course, of the Bible. In chapter 1, we are presented not only with an account of creation, but also polarities, heavens and earth, light and darkness, land and sea, sun and moon, plants and animals, man and woman. One way of interpreting this is as an implicit message of opposition, almost of dualism. That's perhaps the way we're disposed to read it in an age conditioned by our notions of the right versus the left, progressives versus conservatives. But the message of Genesis 1 is actually of unity. God creates the heavens and the earth and light and darkness, and then God saw that it was good. It, not they. God fashions the land and the sea, and again we're told that God saw that it was good. Even when God creates the multitude of animals, the object of his delight remains singular. And God saw that it was good. God next forms man and woman in his own unifying image before gazing upon every atom of his creation and again delighting in it as a whole. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. It's therefore fitting that after completing this new world with the Garden of Eden, God's first worry, the first time his delight is diminished, is when he says, it is not good that man should be alone. 
So far, everything God has done has been wonderful, teeming with life and fecundity. Suddenly, in Genesis 2, he sees something that isn't delightful. Adam is alone. Unless he too can share in conjugal love, the world won't be utterly delightful. And so God fashions Eve. Her formation caps the perfect world of unifying differences. A central and often overlooked message of Genesis is that difference doesn't mean opposition. Genesis presents all of creation before the fall as being intended for each other, united together by God's delight, by the fact that he gazes on their union and sees that it is good. Genesis pushes us to see difference as unifying, nuptial even. The image isn't of warfare, but of marriage. We aren't presented with true polarities, not heaven versus the earth, not sun versus the moon, land versus sea, or man versus woman. Rather, each is joined together as if in marriage to make a whole. Profoundly, the verse about Adam and Eve being joined by God after the fall is really the central teaching of the Bible. What God has joined together, let no one separate. What joins them together is delight, fundamentally God's delight. All our so-called polarities and dualisms are united in his delight. To him they are it rather than they, and he delights in that wholeness. And God saw that it is good is just another way of saying, and God delights in it. Norman Wurzba captures this sense when he writes, Creation's goodness, its beauty and splendor, the very quality about it that makes God pause to behold it in moments of rapt attention and appreciation, is a reflection of God's perception of it. God's perception is his delight. That these juxtapositions are portrayed in a nuptial light also suggests that God enjoys paradoxes. What keeps creation from fragmenting and spinning out into chaos is the delight that God took and continues to take in his creation. God even permits living creatures to return that delight by fulfilling his commandment to be fruitful and multiply. The nuptial union of differences can thus also be generative, abounding in flourishing life. Before the fall, Adam and Eve share in that delight through their own unselfish love for each other, their care for Eden, the holy of holies of creation, and by their obedience to the God who delights in them. As image bearers of God, their nuptial union stands at the pinnacle of the nuptial union of creation. The delight God takes in them overflows into the delight that they take in each other and the delight they experience in paradise. Notice, too, what this does to our understanding of the Incarnation. Instead of it being an anomaly, a kind of creative way God went about redeeming us, the Incarnation is the ultimate nuptial act. In Christ, humanity and God are married. In Christ, heaven and earth come together without one absorbing the other. The whole debate about the person of Christ, how he is both God and man, that consumed the church during its first five centuries can be seen as the de theological determination to say of the Son, in the face of heretics, 
What God has joined together, let no one separate. And the scriptural vision of the new creation, where heaven and earth meet, symbolized most powerfully by Revelation's vision of the new Jerusalem, reinforces the theme that just as we began in nuptial unity, we will end in nuptial unity. Scripture is like a Shakespearean comedy, like Twelfth Night or Midsummer Night's Dream or Love's Labor's Lost. It ends with the healing of division and a happy marriage. No wonder that so many of Jesus' parables involve a wedding feast. What God has joined together, let no one separate, invites us to embrace a sacramental vision of being human beings. In the face of a fallen world, it asks us to strive in Christ to hold together heaven and creation, spirit and matter, humanity and God, and the active and the contemplative. In Galatians, Paul writes, there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Early Christians, in fact, remained all of those things after their conversion, but now their differences find unity in Christ. In each and every one of those cases, we're taught that what God has joined together, let no one separate. Taking the Incarnation as our guide, therefore, we can say that what seems mutually opposed, what seems antithetical, what seems paradoxical, is in reality a seamless whole, a deep unity redolent with divinity. Reflecting on my overnight walk on Kader Idris convinced me that this nuptial vision is central to the Christian faith. Suddenly, my love of history and the countryside, my enjoyment of stories and of contemplative silence, and my delight in discovering ordinary wonders all came together with my Christian faith. Call it the fancy of a perambulating priest. I came away from Kader Idris in the midst of a collapsing life, feeling more grounded and purposeful than ever. I had discovered in all those paradoxes not only a renewal of my faith, but also my home. This has been a production of Convivium, an initiative of Brecon Cathedral to encourage people to live well with God, creation, their local heritage, and each other. For more information about Convivium, visit us at www.convivium-brecon.com. Dot com.